0: I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Susan Clayton. She is the Whitmore Williams Professor of Psychology at the College of Worcester. That is in Worcester, Ohio. And she was a lead author on the chapter on health, well-being, and the changing structure of communities in the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, published in February of 2023. And of course, that is a United Nations panel. The IPCC describes the perils of climate change and the negative impacts felt around the world. And Dr. Clayton is a social psychologist, and one of her areas of research is how people are affected By the natural environment, and she studies how we can be psychologically resilient in the face of climate change. Dr. Clayton has edited or authored six. Books, including Psychology and Climate Change, Human Perceptions, Impacts, and Responses. She also helped develop the Climate Change Anxiety Scale, which has been used around the world to study emotional responses to climate change. I heard Dr. Clayton speak at the Association of Healthcare Journalists annual meeting in St. Louis in March of 2023, and I knew I wanted her to be my guest. So, welcome, Dr. Clayton.
1: Thanks, Melinda. I'm happy to be with you today.
0: Well, I want to back up a bit before we dive into climate change and ask you, what is a social psychologist and what led you to this field of study?
1: Oh, great question. I describe a social psychologist as somebody who's interested in the average person. So even before I got my degree, I was just curious about people and how they interact with each other and how they think about each other. Social psychologists study normal human behavior and how we kind of relate to each other. How that took me in the direction where I find myself now is certainly not anything I anticipated at the beginning, but I care about the natural environment and I've always been interested in it. And I gradually started to recognize that there was a, a social component to our interactions with the natural environment in multiple ways. One is, I think... Your listeners can certainly recognize that environmental issues are very socially contested and, and socially disputed these days, but also the ways in which we interact with the natural world are very often parts of social interactions. So we don't just go out into nature by ourselves. We go with friends, we go with our family. We want to share those interactions, and that's how we build our relationship with nature.
0: Mm. it's so interesting that you mentioned the divides that we have and how climate change or caring for the environment has become politicized. And I can never understand how that could be after spending time in nature, falling in love with it seems like the natural thing to do. And then how would we not always be focused on protecting nature?
1: Well, it is a mystery in many ways. I think one important thing to remember is that it is not inevitable that the environment becomes politically polarized. And the United States is distinctive in the extent to which this is the case. It's somewhat true in other places, but um, not to the extent that it is here. And we live in an era in which almost everything has become politically contested. So it's not surprising that the environment has become one of those things. But certainly, as you say, you know, we all love nature. And in fact, people who are on the, you know, the right end of the political spectrum also tend to love nature and in many ways value nature. So you can talk to them about nature, as long as you don't necessarily use the triggering words, climate change, you might find a great deal of agreement.
0: Right? Yes, I think language is so important. And I wanted to ask you, I had read a statistic, I believe it was the Pew Foundation, that said 40% of Americans are in the denial stage or they don't believe that humans contribute to climate change. And I thought, this is really fascinating. What can I do or we together as people who care about the environment, we see the wreckage from climate change. What kind of language should we be using to communicate that? Well,
1: this is, a, of course, a really crucial question. And I I'll give you two different answers. One is that we know that people across the political spectrum respond very strongly to messages regarding health. So it has somehow become the case that we, when we think about environmental protection, people often respond as if we're asking them to, to do something altruistic, to sacrifice themselves on behalf of the environment. But of course, it's not that at all. It's about protecting ourselves because we can't exist, we can't function without a healthy natural environment. So reminding people of the the health implications of environmental changes such as climate change can be a really powerful way to, um, to get agreement about the issue. And even more broadly, I'll just say, we need to talk about it more. There's research that shows that people care More about climate change than they think other people do, you know, which is statistically impossible. Everyone thinks they care more than the average person. And it's partly because people don't bring it up because they are afraid of, they think they'll say something and the person they're talking to will disagree or will feel attacked or will respond in an angry way. But in fact, that's probably not true. So I think we can all just bring up the topic in conversation more than we're
0: doing. Mm. I want to know what comes to your mind when I say climate change.
1: Oh, I think about, uh, I mean, it's such a broad concept. I think about the extreme weather events that we see around the world, including in places in the United States that are happening more and more often. I think most of us if not all of us have been struck by events that we that took us by surprise that we didn't expect to see so close to home like the the heat dome over the northwest or the wildfires in california or some of the really strong hurricanes and then i i think about the future and i'm a parent and i think about i wonder what the future will look like for my children and i wonder how they think about the future and so Those would be the two main things, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think mostly of the health concerns, the health ramifications. And then I also think about what it must be like for someone trying to escape, say, a neighborhood of blazing homes And I would like to thank my mother, actually, who is no longer with us, but she taught me even as a little girl to try to put myself in another person's shoes. And I tend to do that to a fault, but I can't help but think how people feel when their lives are so uprooted. The family recently, I think it was in Kentucky, that lost a number of children to a flooding condition I can't imagine the devastation and the loss. And as a psychologist, you must delve into these feelings that people have, you know, increased eco-anxiety or eco-grief. How do we navigate these feelings?
1: Well, that's a very personal question. I mean, I don't mean that you're uh, asking me something that's too personal, but I mean, it's something that the answer has to be personal to each individual. Some people, I think and I think your question was kind of getting at this, some people are not feeling enough emotion. So in a way we need to help them to have a stronger emotional reaction to some of these stories. But of course, many of us are feeling these very strong negative emotions. And there are ways to to cope with negative emotions. One is to try and be aware of them and to recognize when it's becoming overwhelming and try and, and take a break for yourself, whether that means taking a pause from looking at the news or um, engaging in some mindful breathing or going out and taking a walk. All of those things are are very useful strategies. Um, So we want to feel the emotions, but we also need to make sure that we don't become overwhelmed or or, or paralyzed with this sense of anxiety or grief.
0: Hmm. You know, I sometimes wonder what kind of underlying level of anxiety and grief we carry with us. So we read these reports, how much are we internalizing them? Or we witness or live through a horrific climate event? How much does that impact our ability to feel deep joy and happiness going forward?
1: Yeah, that's not a question that I can give a a definitive answer to. But it is something that a lot of clinical psychologists are thinking about, um, in a way our our recognition that there's something wrong with the world and maybe something wrong with the way we interact with the world our this this interior knowledge that although we we manage to suppress it um, and and avoid thinking about it can't help but have a an effect on again as you say our our ability to feel joy or or happiness. <laughs>
0: Well, you work with a lot of young people on campus and you have conducted the climate change anxiety scale. What can you tell me about your research and how people are feeling generally?
1: I had several questions in mind when I started to do research into this issue of climate anxiety. And the the first is, you know, how many people are really feeling this? Because It was in the news a lot. This is about um, three or four years ago when I really started to look into it. But, you know, was it a real thing? How common was it? And then the second question I had was, is it something that's actually affecting mental health? And to answer that, you need to say, well, well, how do we know if it affects, or how can we decide, how do we determine if it affects mental health? Um, Generally, The rule of thumb tends to be if something interferes with your ability to function and live a kind of full life. So if your anxiety about climate is um, making it difficult for you to work or making it so that you can't enjoy yourself with your friends or interfering with your ability to sleep or making you cry a lot, uh, then it starts to become something that I would consider a threat to mental health. And um, So the research showed me, and uh, as as you noted earlier, people are continuing to use the scale, so we have more and more evidence. Um, I, I'm not surprised to say that not far from the majority of the people feel this, but a solid minority of people do report feeling a level of anxiety about climate change that is, um, I think... Ha- does have the potential to affect their mental health, and I would say somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent is probably um, the best guess. We can't give really any more precise figures than that. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot of people are worried um, from from national surveys. Um, a majority of people tend to express concern and worry about climate change, but um, the substantial minority are feeling. Anxious at a level where it's beginning to have an effect on them.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm curious to know about the most vulnerable populations. You know, who do we need to be focusing our energy on? And there was discussion in St. Louis at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting about the vulnerability of children and the vulnerability of the disabled. We know that mental health. Care is woefully inadequate. And that was even before we started to really feel the impacts of climate change. But when there are children at stake and we hear about the adverse events that they might experience as children and how they can, imp- and how those events can impact their adult lives. Do you have any strategies for helping those most vulnerable children navigate these questionable times? That 's a great question, and that's
1: certainly something i'm I'm looking into, particularly in regards to um, maybe what can be offered through the education system because that is a way that we can reach most children um, and I think what children need is um, is accurate information and they need support um, Those are sort of the most basic things uh, I think part of What's going on in air in air climate? Where we don't really talk about climate change is, of course, the children are hearing about it. They can't help it. You know, it's it's on the news. It's on social media. Um, you know, they'll see pictures. They'll their friends may talk to them about it. So what they need is somebody to to essentially affirm to them, yes, this is happening. Here's the correct story. Here's what we know. Whereas if people don't talk about it, the children just get kind of more confused and uncertain. And then their feelings need to be um, kind of supported. Yes, it is worrying. Yes, you're not wrong to worry about this. But if the children have a sense that the adults in their life are paying attention, and maybe are going to do something about it, that will be more reassuring to them.
0: That's good advice. Okay. We are halfway through. So let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Susan Clayton. She is a social psychologist. She is based at the College of Worcester, in Worcester, Ohio. She was the lead author of the chapter on health, well-being, and the changing structure of communities in the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I will provide a link to that report, as well as another website which you recommended, Dr. Clayton, which is EcoAmerica, and that's www.ecoamerica.org, so we can stay informed and find solutions. So there was a recent article in the New York Times, which said, frighteningly so, the headline was, The World Has Less Than a Decade to Stop Catastrophic Warming, UN Panel Says. And I have been paying attention to climate change, but there was something about this particular headline that really screamed urgency. And we see governments not really taking as much action as they should. So that leaves me, at least, with climate anxiety. What do you tell people who understand the urgency of the problem and they want to do something, but they don't know really where to start?
1: Well, I think we can all do something. I mean, this is the most important message. We can all do something. And what we choose to do, I think, can depend on our individual circumstances, but also our individual Preferences. So one of the most effective things to do is to essentially get involved with social activism or political activism. So talk to your elected officials, try to meet with them, um, maybe write to corporate executives asking them to change their policies, because what individuals can do that will matter most is to change the, the practices of larger groups. But not everybody is comfortable doing that. And that's fine too. We can all make changes in our individual lives. We can, as I mentioned earlier, just talking to other people can be really effective because we need to increase awareness. If I was going to recommend some specific behaviors I would say focus on reducing your use of fossil fuels. And probably the two best ways to do that would be to um, drive less if you can, take you know public transportation or walk or ride your bike. If you're making big purchases like a new car or new appliances, make sure you get ones that are energy efficient. And then a lot of people don't recognize that they're, well, this is something that you may have talked about earlier, that they're eating habits there. The food they buy and the food they eat and what they do with it has a big climate impact. So we can make changes there that can be really significant.
0: Yeah, I think it's very important to feel empowered. I thought it was interesting that there are some groups of people that, of course, deny that climate change is happening. But there are also people who have a religious way of thinking where They believe that God is in charge and we can't make a difference. So how do we navigate knowing that we can collectively make a difference and that individuals joining together with larger groups can have a greater impact? But what if you are immersed in a community that is driving home a message that it's God's will, it doesn't matter what we do, and then they just continue living irresponsibly when it comes to the climate?
1: Yeah, that's a great point about messaging. It will probably depend on the particular community, but I think one strategy is to, I think for a lot of people who have strong religious beliefs, they have a sense that there is a moral value to the natural environment and to the way we treat the natural environment. So even if you believe that because God is in charge, nothing humans do can permanently impair the environment, Most people tend to respond to the idea of stewardship. You know, if you're a Christian, there's a a message about stewardship and taking care of the natural resources that God has provided. Other religions also have a similar message. So getting at that idea that, okay, maybe our behavior won't matter in terms of the concrete impact, but there are still better ways of acting, more moral, more ethical ways of acting with nature.
0: Now, you mentioned the value of visiting zoos in one of the presentations that you gave. And I thought that was interesting. I haven't been to a zoo in a long time since my children were young. What happens with people when they visit zoos?
1: Well, there's a lot that could be said about zoos, and we don't want to necessarily engage with all of that complexity. But I will say that most people who go to zoos are going to them because they value nature in some way. And zoos have that opportunity to demonstrate the natural world to people in a way that can increase their value of it, and also to present a message of environmental conservation. And And zoos, accredited zoos, very much consider themselves to be conservation organizations. So if you haven't been to a zoo recently, you might not have seen this, but for decades, they've been emphasizing risks to species and the need to protect species, the need uh, for conservation. Increasingly, they are emphasizing other environmental threats or more general environmental threats, such as climate change. So they're a great place to reach out to an audience that is already kind of predisposed to like nature and maybe activate that care for nature a little bit more and tell them why it's
0: important. You know, I think it's interesting There are some states that are more impacted by climate change or in different ways. So, in California, we see more droughts and fires, although we certainly have had a sudden deluge in California. In Florida, for example, though, I find it interesting that the water levels, say in Miami, there are tides that are coming up, there's water coming up in the street. And yet, politically, there was this move not to talk about climate change. And I th- i think as a psychologist, you might have some tips for us on how to navigate these really tricky situations where, say, someone is in a work environment and they're told they can't talk about climate change, even though climate events are happening all around them. Do you have any thoughts on how this gets back to the language and messaging question do you have any thoughts on how to navigate those very difficult environments? Yes, and it's just, it's so
1: it's so ridiculous at some level that states that are already seeing terrible effects of climate change may also be states in which it's hard to talk about. I think the best strategy in that case might often be to talk about the immediate problem and not reference the underlying cause because that will trigger people's sort of political defense mechanisms but just saying what can we do about this nuisance flooding for example what would be appropriate ways to respond i think what we have to remember is that people and this is this is my psychological message or my message as a psychologist people are capable of an astonishing amount of denial and if you tell them something scary but you don't tell them what they can do about it it's very common response to just try and defend your psychological health by denying that message or at least avoiding thinking about it so if we say hey floridians you know you're doomed you're going to be over underwater in 20 years that's not going to motivate action probably if we say There's a problem in Florida. Here are some of the things that maybe we should be talking about doing, or maybe you should be talking about doing. That's going to be probably more effective at getting a response.
0: And then there are people who are truly victimized and powerless. And I think about populations, certainly in the global South. I think about even populations, say, in Alaska, indigenous populations that their entire food system, their whole lifestyle, their culture revolves around having ice and snow and dependable times when they can go out on ice to fish and get their food. How do we help people empathize with those whose entire lifestyle and culture is at risk? I think this is one of the most
1: important things that people don't understand or don't recognize is that climate change is not affecting everybody equally, and there are already people who are feeling very dramatic negative effects, and it tends to be people who have fewer economic resources, um, who are socially marginalized in some ways. I wish we all felt more empathy for each other, but I don't want to blame people too much. We, you know, there's we all have a lot going on. We have a lot of things that claim our attention, so we might just not be paying attention to the experiences of a group that we don't know much about. Two of the things that can maybe help to increase empathy, one is to focus on individual stories. So I'm sure everybody can remember one story, maybe it was the soccer team trapped in the cave or farther back, baby Jessica falling down the well. When you hear about a very dramatic individual incident, it grabs your attention and it really elicits those emotions. So hearing more about the individual stories of people who are experiencing these problems, but also recognizing what we have in common. So points of shared experience. And one thing that, um, again, people may not know, the first climate refugees in the United States were actually in the community in the Gulf of Mexico, where they also, this was in Louisiana, experienced a lot of coastal erosion, just losing land at almost, uh, you you can almost watch it go. And uh, so it is hitting close to home already that people are losing, losing places that are important to them. And I think for a lot of people, they can recognize that, you know, there may be a place that's important to them and they may have seen changes in that place and sort of thinking about that might lead them to have greater empathy for people whose, whose homeland is sort of changing beyond recognition.
0: Mm. We just have a minute left. Do you have a message to our listeners?
1: I do. And I think this relates back to the to the news article that you just talked about. It is not too late, and I think the the article tried to emphasize that there are things we can do. In fact, there's an enormous number of things we could do that could make a huge difference. So um, don't give up. And even if you know we all we talk about trying to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius um, of an increase, even if we miss that target. Even if we go to 1.6, 1.6 is still better than 1.7. 1.7 is still better than 1.8. So everything we do helps. It's not just, you know, if we can't make a particular target, we should just give up. We can all do something and everything we do um, can help to make a difference.
0: That's an important message. Thank you. I will provide a link, as I said, to the IPCC report, as well as ecoamerica.org. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio was produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Susan Clayton. She is a social psychologist. She is the Whitmore Williams Professor of Psychology at the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio. And she was the lead author of the chapter on health, well-being and the changing structure of communities in the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing your insights. Thank you, Melinda. Thanks for the conversation.